So I wanted to begin our time today just reminding you a little bit about Peter and Jesus, Peter's relationship with Jesus. Um, God had me up at 4.30 a.m. thinking about this today, reflecting on Peter's relationship with Jesus. You know, we talked about this, but I'm going to talk about it again, that Peter was called by Jesus to join him in that first encounter we see that Peter goes out on this boat with Jesus. Jesus tells him to cast the net to the side. And even though they caught no fish before, they bring in this amazing amount of fish. It almost tips the boat over. And in that process, Peter comes to realize his own sinfulness. And he falls down onto his knees and he says, you know, God. He says to Jesus, he says, I am a sinner. Depart from me. And Peter says to him, Peter, stand up. From now on, you're going to be fishing for men instead of fishing for these little fishies. And that begins the relationship that Peter has with Jesus. Peter is drawn to this man. He's the first man to confess Jesus as the Christ. We see him walking on water because Jesus calls him, that he houses Jesus in his house, he heals his mother-in-law. So many things, this relationship with Peter. And we see Peter intertwined with Jesus in a very real way. And so I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes, that it's you that... Jesus says, you're going to be this leader in the early church. And, and it's you who Jesus brings up onto the Mount of the Transfiguration. And you see him clothed in white, and you get to meet Moses and Elijah. And it's you that Jesus is washing your feet in the, at the Last Supper in the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 13, that this is Peter's relationship with Jesus. It's, it's Peter that Jesus brings with him to the garden. He says, Peter, please stay awake. Stay awake with me while I pray. It's Peter who, when Jesus says, you're going to deny me, Peter says, there's no way I'll deny you. I would sooner die than deny you. And when Jesus comes to be arrested, it's Peter who draws his sword before however many soldiers, and he's ready to, to fight to the death for Jesus. But Jesus tells him to put his sword away as Jesus puts Malchus's ear back on. And then in just a few short hours later, it's going to be Peter who is warming himself near a campfire as Jesus is being pulled into this kangaroo court. And someone says to him, hey, you know, I recognize your accent. Aren't you a Galilean? And Peter says, I don't know that man. And then it's Peter who, again, someone says, no, I definitely saw you with that group. And, and he says, I tell you, I don't know him. And the slave girl, little teenage girl against this big fisherman, she says, no, certainly you were with him. And he says, I tell you, I don't know the man. And at that point in time, Peter realizes he's denied Jesus three times. And it says he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, within 24 hours, Jesus would be crucified. And now I want you to imagine, Peter, your last experience with Jesus is you denying him three times and his gaze meeting you across the courtyard. And then he's dead. That's your last memory of him. And so you have three days before Jesus is raised from the grave. Now, if you're Peter, you're basically facing two options at this point in time. Option one is you can justify your denial of Jesus. In other words, you can downplay what just happened, and you can say it was no big deal, like this guy died, obviously I was deceived, I mean, it's good that I, de I denied him. You can do those kinds of things. Or you could wallow in guilt and shame, right? 
And depending on your personality, if you're honest, you probably would lean towards one of those two things, either being dismissive, no big deal, that guy was a crook anyway, that's why they killed him, or you would carry that like a sack of rocks for the rest of your life. But then something happens. That Sunday, the women go to anoint Jesus' body with the herbs and spices and those sorts of things, as is fitting for the funeral process, and he's not there. And the women go, and, and they run into an angel, and the angel says this. The angel says, oh, Jesus is risen, so go and get Peter and the other disciples. Now, at that point in time, if you're Peter, right, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes back from the grave, and it's like, hey, guys, Jesus is back from the dead. He's looking for Peter. <laughs> what do you think you'd be thinking? Oh, my goodness, right? So Peter doesn't go looking for Jesus right away, no. <laughs> So that night, actually, it says that Jesus appeared to them. He came into the, the room. He appeared to them. Thomas isn't there. But he's only there momentarily, and then he's gone. And he doesn't come back again for a week. So you have to remember that even for a moment, you might be like, did that really happen? Because now it's been a week. And then a week later, the same thing happens. They're eating dinner, and all of a sudden, Jesus pops in, and then he disappears again. And then Peter does what any man typically would do when he doesn't know what to do. He says, I'm going fishing. And he goes fishing, and while he's there, there's another miraculous catch of fish. Jesus is on the shore. Peter jumps off. This is how a man says he's sorry, by the way. He jumps off, and he just swims to shore fully dressed, and he stands in front of Jesus like this. And this is like, I guess I'm sorry. You right? Jesus eats a meal with Peter, and three times Peter is asked by Jesus, Peter, do you love me? And every time he says, Yes, Lord. He says, Then feed my sheep, or some variation thereof. Three times, once for every denial. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then the third time he says, Peter, do you love me? And it says, Peter was saddened at this. But then Jesus says, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And then he ends that interaction with this. He says, hey, Peter, follow me. Just as it began, so it ends in John chapter 21 with Peter. Peter would go on to be a very important person in the New Testament. That imagine if in that process of planting the early church and healing this first guy and preaching this first sermon at Pentecost where 3,000 men get saved, imagine if instead of that, walking in the confidence of feeling like you've been reinstated because Jesus says, follow me, imagine if instead of all that, Peter had been paralyzed by self-condemnation. Because if anybody would have a reason to beat themselves up for the rest of their life, it would have been Peter, wouldn't it? Peter would have had plenty of reasons to wallow. That's a very real possibility. But what we see from Peter's life and what we learn in this passage is that's not what happened to Peter. That Peter understood the grace of Jesus. He understood the forgiveness that comes from the gospel. And so he got past all of that guilt and shame, not because he had a really good counselor necessarily, but because he understood the gospel and the Holy Spirit was applying it to his heart in power. But I mean, Peter was a man just like you and me. 
And so you have to imagine, and it's not a stretch to realize that certainly at times during his life, the guilt and shame of what he did would resurface and that bony finger of self-condemnation would begin pointing from time to time. I mean, that's not a stretch at all, is it? Peter's just like us. But in this passage, Peter is going to show us why it is so crucial to apply the gospel to eliminate that guilt and shame that will otherwise chase you down and cripple you until it devours you. All right? So we're in verse 5. For this very reason. All right, we'll stop right there. For this very reason, obviously, looks back. It looks back to last week. And so Peter is beginning this section saying, because of what I just talked about, um, this is what I'm going to tell you now. And so if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to the sermon. It's always recorded unless we have some kind of technical difficulty. But essentially what Peter is saying is this. Because God has forgiven you and then filled you with the Holy Spirit to live a life that God desires, therefore... So because God has forgiven you and given you the Holy Spirit so that you can live the life he wants, and this is what you need to do in verses 5, 6, and 7. One, make, or verse 5 rather, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, the definition of supplement is, a supplement is to essentially add something that enhances something else. And so in a couple minutes, we're going to explain why I think that Peter uses that verse. But essentially, um, this is like adding, adding seasoning onto what is already done, okay? And so the gospel is done. We established that in verses 3 and 4. And then Peter's saying, add this to the finished work. Not, not to complete what was not fully completed, as we're going to see shortly, but because you're enhancing something. And this is what he says. He goes through these lists, and you should know with this list, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, you should know with this list that it builds. It builds. There's a, there's a crescendo, so to say, in this list that is culminating with that last word, love, or specifically agape love, which is selfless love. And so the first thing is virtue. Virtue. We talked about last week in verses 3 and 4, it says that because God is excellent, he has made great promises. And so the idea here of virtue refers back to verse 3 and that word excellence. The idea is that because God is excellent, we should be growing as his people in moral excellence. That's the idea. Virtuous is something that's praiseworthy. It's something that's excellent. And so in other words, we pursue excellence. We pursue moral purity. We pursue things that are praiseworthy. We stop acting like jerks, right? That's like the most basic changes that happen when we become followers of Jesus. In light of his grace, this is our way forward. But then he says, add to that virtue knowledge. And as Peter uses knowledge throughout the book of 2 Peter, as he uses the word knowledge, he's specifically not referring to knowledge of, uh, not knowledge of, of God, like a, who God is. He's referring to an intimate knowledge that doesn't know about God, but he's intimately acquainted with who God is. He knows who God is. 
One of the commentaries I looked at gave this example of if you had a stage and there were two people who were going to read Psalm 23, and one is a professional voice actor who would no doubt deliver an amazing performance of reading Psalm 23, and then one, you know, from this 85-year-old seasoned follower of Jesus who had been memorizing Psalm 23 since they were a child, and you have them share it. The difference is that one knows the psalm and the other knows the shepherd of who wrote the psalm. And that's the difference between the kind of knowledge. There's plenty of men and women who are brilliant, and they teach at Duke Theological Seminary and these sorts of things, and they know all sorts of things about Christianity and about Koine Greek and about the Septuagint and about and about and about. But the question isn't whether or not you know about God. James says, oh, you know about God? Good. So do the demons. The question is whether you're acquainted with him. The question is whether you have an intimate knowledge of who he is. And so Peter says to add to moral excellence a deep understanding of, going back to verse 3, the God who has called. And of course, how do you know about the God who has called? By learning about him, but then also having that drop from your head to your heart. And he says, on top of that, then you add to that self-control. And everybody went, right? Self-control, because in light of who God is, in light of what he's done, in light of the charges that he gives me, the commands he gives you, I need to learn to control myself, because as we read in Romans chapter 8, no longer am I dominated by sin. Now I am dominated by the Spirit. And so I can, for the first time as a new creation, cooperate with the Spirit of God instead of pushing against the Spirit of God. Add to that self-control steadfastness, which is another way of saying perseverance. Add to that godliness, which is reverence, respect, piety. God said, be holy as I am holy. We add to that Philadelphia brotherly affection, brotherly love, the word Philadelphia. That's we add to that, this idea of we are part of a family, that I'm going to show you brotherly love. We're going to take care of one another. And then to that, it culminates with agape love. And if you've heard that word agape, people are quick to say, well, agape love is unconditional love. And if it's used exclusively in a Christian sense, it often refers to that. But agape, it's not just a Christian word. It's a word that you see in other Greek literature, other uh, in kind of contemporary contexts. And it also most normally refers to selfless love. Selfless love. But selfless love is more advanced than brotherly affection, isn't it? Because brotherly affection is I'm being kind to you because, you know, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. But selfless love costs me. Selfless love costs me something. And so we see this crescendo culminating with this selfless love. This has to do with the way that you live in response to the gospel. Now, you might be thinking, well, why on earth am I supplementing my faith? Because we always talk about how salvation is just by faith, and then I don't need to do anything. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so why am I, it sounds a lot to me like you're talking about a workspace salvation. And so why on earth do I supplement anything? And Peter anticipates that question, and then he responds to it. You see that with the little word for. He says in verse 8, For, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So let's go back to that word supplement. See, the punishment for sin, which is the wrath of God, the atoning sacrifice that Jesus offered, that the wrath of God is propitiated, which means it is fully satisfied. The punishment for sin, wrath, is covered. It's paid in full. It is satisfied. But the script, that's justification. But the scriptures also say that we are still a work in progress. Now, we talked about this. You know this is true. Like, you're not as much of an idiot as you were 10 years ago, Lord willing, but you're still on the spectrum of idiot to Jesus. Like... You do the math, okay? So, in other words, supplement here is not about earning salvation, but it is to, as it says in this verse, about doing these things so you can be more effective and fruitful in your intimate relationship with Jesus. You could say that, well, we don't pursue these things if you could say that when we don't pursue these things, we won't know Jesus as much as we could, okay? And so if you've ever asked yourself the question, why do I need to obey if Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe? Might as well go out and do whatever I want. And this is why. The gospel frees us up and the gospel empowers us to live differently. And this type of gospel-given life helps us to grow, become more fruitful and effective, not just in what we do, that our behavior improves, but more importantly, in the knowledge of Jesus. Now, this sounds a lot like John chapter 14, verse 21, which I'll read. Whoever had, this is Jesus talking in the, in his final discourse, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, in other words, obeys them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, most of us use things like manifest myself. You know, your kid does something wrong, and you say, I will manifest my anger by the time I count to three, unless you cease and desist. So what's Jesus saying? This is what Jesus is saying. How many of you are familiar with the Love Languages book, Five Love Languages? Like every Christian's heard of it, right? And they just pretend like they know what it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I don't remember them, but I got it. So the, we'll add a sixth love language that is specific to Jesus and some parents, right? The <laughs> Jesus' love language is obedience. That's how we show our love to Jesus. That's what Peter says in, in 2 Peter 1. It's what Jesus says in John 14. He says that if you love me, you will obey me. But this is why we obey. If you obey me, I will make myself manifest to you. In other words, the more you obey Jesus, the more you know Jesus intimately. You say, I don't believe that's true. It is true because it goes like this. You're super stressed and someone reminds you to slow down Stop panicking, pray, they give you a passage of scripture, and so you obey that, you say, I'm going to be anxious for nothing, but in everything with thanksgiving, I'm going to present these requests to the Lord, and the peace of God is going to guard my heart and mind, and you actually apply that, you actually obey that, and you feel the relief that the Holy Spirit promises, then the next time something happens, are you more likely or less likely to trust Jesus? You're more likely 
And so as you obey Jesus, you know him more intimately, and then you are, you are more ready to actually come to him with your burdens. But when you're immature in the faith, you don't have this seasoned practice of constantly coming to Jesus. And so obedience is a key way that we know God better, that we become more acquainted with who he is. And so if you need any motivation to obey at all, it's this. If you obey, you'll know Jesus better. That's what Peter is arguing when he says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective in the knowledge of Jesus. All right? You guys followed me on all that? Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In my opinion, this is the most important verse in this whole stretch. You see, because religion says, if you lack these qualities, it's because you're not what? Trying hard enough. You need to try harder. And then you'll get better. That's just the bottom line. You got to white knuckle it. Well, that didn't work before we believers. It really doesn't work after we're believers. And that's not what the scripture teaches. Look what the scripture says. If you lack these qualities, virtue, knowledge of God, perseverance, brotherly affection, godliness, love. If you lack the self-control, if you lack these qualities, Peter says, it's because you forgot about your forgiveness. Now, that should make you at least a little bit go, I don't think it does, Peter. But that's what Peter says. He says, if you lack the qualities, it's because it's not because you aren't trying hard enough. It's because you've forgotten the gospel. You have forgotten that you were forgiven. Listen, there's two main attacks there's lots of attacks, but I'm going to highlight two main attacks. And hear me now, because they're not new. There's nothing new under the sun, and chances are you're going to struggle with them this week. There's two main attacks that we see. The enemy comes at, his, at God's people time and time again. Attack number one is self-condemnation. It's forgetting that you've been forgiven, okay? In other words, God says, well, but remember when you did that, you're such an idiot, aren't you? And then you kind of, you mess up and you walk around and you're like, I'm an idiot. I don't even deserve to live, right? And you, you say these kinds of things in your head. You kind of cuss yourself out in your brain. This is what people do. And I know not you good people, but people like me, okay? And this is self-condemnation. The opposite side of that is the same thing, it's what I'm calling self-ignorance. It's ignoring the fact that you need to be forgiven. Right? So in other words, when it comes to understanding the work of the gospel in your life, you can either say, no, 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 Jesus, I know you forgive me, but I can't forgive myself because frankly, I'm a bigger God than you. That's self-condemnation. It's also idolatry, right? Or you can say, well, you know, that was just not even a big deal. Like, everybody does that. Nobody in Cape May County pays their taxes. Right? We can do one extreme or the other. And so we can either dismiss things and say, it's not a big deal. That's not even a sin. 
And what, by the way, if you grew up in a denomination where they kind of gave you lists of sins, it's like, well, it's a sin to do this, it's a sin to do that, it's a sin to do this, and you say, well, I don't do those things, so what do I lack, Jesus? <laughs> Remember what the law says. Jesus summarized the law by saying this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. You don't even know what that means. If you want perfection, that's being sinless. Being without sin doesn't mean you didn't swear today or that, you know, you, you, you only watched an hour of Netflix, not an hour five. Like, that's not how sin works. We are, in our own sinful nature, we are abhorrent to the presence of God. We're spiritually dead, not spiritually mostly dead, not spiritually sick. We need spiritual regeneration. So we can easily dumb down God's holiness, and as we dumb down God's holiness, we say, you know what, that's not even a sin. I don't need to apologize for that. I don't need to confess that. And we argue with ourselves all the time, right? We do that. We all do that. We say, well, you know, is this a sin? I don't know. I don't know. It's probably not a big deal. Or we live under the rock of self-condemnation because we are upset at ourselves that we failed yet again because religion still runs so deep we think we can do it. But you can. And Peter says, if you're not growing in love, it's not because you're not trying hard enough, it's because you forget how loved you are. If you don't have selfless love for others, it's because you don't truly comprehend the selfless love that God has for you. Because if you really understood the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God, you would love so differently. And you wouldn't be counting pennies about how much that person gets or how much that person gives or whether I'm going to help him because Jesus paid it all, and he left glory to come down to be born in the likeness of sinful flesh in a stable to pay for your sins and mine. And so the two great needs that we have are to constantly be aware of just how sinful you are without Jesus. But even more than that, to be constantly aware of just how wonderful Jesus is. I think it was Jack Miller, Pastor Jack Miller, who said, cheer up, you're far worse than you realize. But cheer up, Jesus is far greater than you could imagine. And that's the point. And so I think about Peter, and I think about Peter reflecting on all these parables, the parable of the tax collector and the sinner, where the Pharisees, who thought, this is what it says, the Pharisees thought that they had righteousness of their own accord, and so were condescending towards others. And so Jesus told this parable. He said there was a Pharisee who went to pray, and he says, I thank God I'm not like that idiot. I tithe, I do this, I do that, I do this. And meanwhile, the tax collector beats his chest. He won't even look up to heaven. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says the tax collector and not the Pharisee went back to his house justified and forgiven in the eyes of God. But notice what Peter would have remembered from that parable. Jesus said, because they thought their righteousness was earned, I'm paraphrasing, therefore they were condescending towards other people. So that means whenever you're condescending towards other people, it's because you're puffed up in your own self-righteousness. But self-righteousness doesn't save, only gifted righteousness does. 
alien righteousness, as Martin Luther called it. I think of the parable of the unforgiving servant. When there's a, a master and, 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 the, and the master goes to this, his servant and his servant owes him tens of millions of dollars. And he says, I'm going to throw you into prison until it's all paid off. And the servant begs for forgiveness and the master has mercy and he wipes his slate clean. And then the servant goes out and he finds somebody, he owes him a couple bucks. And he demanded the money. And then when he wouldn't give it to him, he threw him in prison and his whole family. And when the master found out, he was furious. Because having been forgiven of so much, how could you not respond with forgiveness? I think about the meals that Peter participated in. The dinner at the Pharisee, also called Simon, Simon the Pharisee's house, when Jesus comes in and a woman who's maybe a less than likable woman, she comes in and she starts anointing Jesus with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee says, how dare you let this woman to touch you? And Jesus says, well, I came in, you offered me no water, you didn't give me anything I need to wash, but she here is here washing my feet with her hair and her tears. And he says, he who has been forgiven of much loves much. The point is when you understand the depth of your own depravity, and even more important than that, the forgiveness that Christ has purchased with his own blood, you love differently. I think about the Last Supper right before G Peter denied Jesus, when Peter singles out or Jesus singles out Peter, loves him well, acknowledging the reality that he's going to deny him very soon. I think about that meal on the shore when Peter is reinstated. See, Peter builds on these parables and these experiences to understand the depth of this insight. He understands that patience, love, forgiveness, steadfastness, this is all born from knowing that we have been forgiven. And the more you understand the depth of your own depravity, and the more you understand what it cost, and the more you understand the lavish grace and love, the indestructible love that God has poured out in response, the more it changes you. But when we forget our need for forgiveness or diminish it, when we forget our forgiveness that God has, all, has given us, then guess what happens? We become less loving, less patient. We pursue God less. We pursue virtue less. We become like Scrooge McDuck. I wanted to end with that so it's not too heavy. Scrooge McDuck. Anyway, verse 10. Okay, so therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. In other words, work hard to prove that you really are one of God's people. Not work hard to become God's people. Work hard to prove that it's real for, there's a lot of fours in this passage, and they're all important. In other words, because if you practice these qualities, you will never fall away. That's a big promise. When you meet someone who has fallen away and backslidden, I would love for you to ask them if they remembered to instill those qualities and if they remembered the depth of the gospel. Because I guarantee you the answer is no, they did not. 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So a couple bullets here. If you seek the Lord, you will find him. 
God's never going to push away someone who is truly seeking him. They're not going to say, I want to know more about you, Jesus. And he's going to go, you're not on the list, right? That's not going to happen. Two, if you practice these things, you will never, never fall away. And the reason you'll never fall away is because you will grow. According to Peter, if you don't practice these things, it's because you've forgotten the gospel. See, your growth and perseverance are the only real proof of genuine faith, that we are saved by faith alone, but it is an active faith and not a passive faith. It results in action. That's what it says in Ephesians 2.10. We are God's worksmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works. That's part of the result. And so we see justification, God has made us righteous in his sight. Sanctification, the Holy Spirit is shaping us to be more like Jesus. Glorification, he who began a good work will bring it about until the day of completion, Philippians 1, 6. So what, Bill? So what, Bill? What are you trying to say to me? Therefore, this is what Peter says, verse 12. I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them, And you are established in the truth that you have. In other words, you know the gospel and you know these qualities, but I'm going to constantly remind you, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Why, Peter? Because I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. In other words, I'm going to die soon. And as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What's Peter saying? Peter knows he's dying. He knows he's on the way out. He doesn't say dying because to live as Christ, to die is gain. He's going to close his eyes. He's going to wake up with the Lord in glory. But Peter knows that he's dying. He knows he's going to be with the Lord. And by writing this letter, he's saying, I want to make sure you have these truths written down so that you don't fall prey to the same stuff that other people are constantly falling prey to. So let's land this plane. Here's the summary, guys. We have this rock-solid foundation of the gospel. I had this nifty little illustration planned out, but I forgot it. Jason even prepped it for me. I want you to picture a piece of wood on the floor. We have this rock-solid foundation of the gospel, knowing that we were dead in our sins and knowing that our sins have been forgiven are like two pillars. So you have you know, a flat block, and then you have two pillars on top, vertical pillars. And that's knowing I need forgiveness, knowing I've been forgiven. And then on top of those two pillars, we supplement our, our, our gospel forgiveness with gospel-purchased attributes, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. So we have this base of the gospel, these two pillars of knowing I need forgiveness, knowing I am forgiven, and then these virtues stacked on top. But the moment we fall prey to either self-condemnation or self-ignorance, what happens if I just kick out that block? The whole thing comes down. Now, the base remains the same because the base is established. But all of that gospel growth gets chipped away. The character that God is building takes a hit, and it needs to be rebuilt. As we remember the gospel, we repent, and we, be, and we remember, I need to be forgiven. I still struggle. And then we begin stacking those virtues again. 
Here's the thing. I know that you struggle with one of these two things. You either struggle consistently with self-condemnation or you struggle consistently with self-ignorance. For me, it's absolutely self-condemnation as my default. I'll beat myself up over current failures, past failures, future things I might do. This is just my constant struggle, and I need to constantly remember Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's my thing. And maybe you're just like me, self-deprecating, right? But for many people, it's also self-ignorance. And self-ignorance is you don't think you're that bad. Like when push comes to shove... I'm better than most. You just don't know yourself very well. And so depending on what you wrestle with, you still need this truth. See, if you dumb Jesus down to the cool uncle who lets you drink in his basement, well, no, then you're not going to feel convicted about anything. But if you realize that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords who's going to come to judge the quick and the dead for everything that they've said, done, thought, that he's got written on his, on his hip, king of kings and lord of lords. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. You read some of those psalms when it says God's presence arises and there's just like this tempestuous fire that's swirling. Yeah, you're going to be like, yo, bro, no big deal. No, he's the judge, but he's also the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. What a paradox he is. We need to constantly remember these two truths. We were dead in our sins, but we've been made alive in Christ. It's where you were, it's where you are now. And when we forget either of those two truths, the tower starts to crumble. That's what it all hinges on, where you were and where you are now. If we forget that God has showed us that unconditional selfless love, then we won't show it to ourselves and we won't show it to others. We need to constantly remember these things. And so I would leave you with the encouragement to read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 this week and really reflect on it in depth. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Read through Romans 7 and 8. Read through Titus chapter 3. Read through some of these core passages that unpack these things. All right? Let's pray. Hopefully David's on his way back because I can't play two instruments at once. Father God, oh man. Father God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray that the gospel would be glorious in our lives. I pray that it would be encouraging to our lives. I pray that it would be encouraging to our spirit. Lord God, I pray that as we reflect on these things, we would marvel at your grace, we'd marvel at your mercy, and we would truly be encouraged. Father, thank you that you sent your son who knew no sin, that he might become sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen.